0: We've done your homework.
1: At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody
0: tika.com
2: I'm Alec Baldwin and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Of all the staff writers at the New Yorker magazine, Susan Orlean covers perhaps the most ground thematically and geographically. She's been embedded with fertility shamans in Bhutan and orchid thieves in Louisiana. She's profiled a dog, a boxer named Biff and the entire city of Midland, Texas. She combines a deep emotional understanding of her subjects with rigorous reporting, and she spends pretty much as long as she likes on each project. If that weren't enough, her book The Orchid Thief inspired Adaptation, one of the more successful arthouse movies of the past 20 years. Her most recent book takes as its heroes the librarians and archivists of Los Angeles County. Her entree to this story was her shock upon hearing for the first time just three years ago about the 1986 arson at L.A.'s Central Library. The fire is mostly unknown outside Southern California, overshadowed by the Chernobyl event. But it's our Alexandria, the most devastating library fire in American history.
3: So we have 400,000 gone, just gone whole collections the la library had the largest cookbook collection in the u.s they're out of print they're gone i mean they had car manuals for every make and model of car starting at the model t
2: irrecoverable
3: yeah it had been developed librarians developed these collections over the years finding these books putting them together So each library is also unique in that way. What's in the New York Public Library is not the same as what's in the L.A. Public Library besides the core stuff. And and while you can quantify it, you can say 400,000 books, the library was founded at the turn of the century. Many of these collections had been built from that time, and that can't be – fixed by money and it's like fantasia it's an incredibly beautiful building that is a sort of combination art deco egyptian downtown uh, right in the center of downtown this was the central library of the entire la library system in 1986 it was in bad shape it was a time when downtown L.A. was in bad shape. People weren't even sure that it was important to have a library downtown. I
2: mean, Los Angeles has changed. It's unrecognizable from when I first came here. No one lived inland. No one lived in Silver Lake and Los Feliz. The air quality was so poor that everybody lived as far west as they could afford. And nobody lived downtown. Describe what happened.
3: Yeah. Um April 1986, a fire alarm went off, and everybody thought it was a false alarm. The library had a lot of false alarms. And lo and behold, firefighters found smoke in the fiction section. Suddenly, It absolutely erupted. I mean, you can imagine a fire in the library. It's the perfect environment. More than that, it wasn't only that it was books. It was in the stacks, which are almost like chimneys. They were thick concrete wall tubes filled with books. Biggest library fire in the history of the U.S., which at the time I heard about it, which was very recently, I'm shocked. You would assume there would be coverage in the New York papers. So I went back to look at what was going on that somehow obscured this news. There is a little story on the front page in the New York Times saying radiation detected in Scandinavia was the Chernobyl meltdown. And I had kind of forgotten how terrifying that had been. Nobody knew what was going to happen, and it really was days of the New York Times being wall to wall Chernobyl coverage because we none of us knew if this fallout was going to end up traveling around the world. In fact, it did.
2: But the Chernobyl—I don't want to digress on this—but I, I had lived in. Los Angeles, pretty much full-time. The only time of my life that I lived only in L.A. was 83, 84, 85. And in December of 85, I moved back to New York. Oh,
3: so you just missed the and, fire.
2: Uh, well, I, And I commuted uh, uh, back and forth forever, but I was mostly in New York. And Chernobyl was in 86. Yeah, And I was living in New York at the time and uh, yeah. remember that vividly. But don't, never heard a word about this fire. Never. Yeah. So how do you first become familiar? How does this cross your desk, so to speak?
3: I had just moved to L.A., And I was offered a tour of Central Library by the head of the Library Foundation because I'd done a little fundraising thing for them. And I thought, well, I've never actually been to Central Library in L.A. And libraries had really come back into my consciousness when I had a kid and started taking my son to the library and was reminded so powerfully of what it is like as a child, to go to a library. And it was really vivid and very poignant for me because my mom had just developed Alzheimer's and I was thinking a lot about our trips together to the library. So libraries were on my mind. When I was offered this tour of Central Library, I thought, oh, great. So I went down there, was really struck by the building because it's so beautiful. And as we were walking through on this tour – Ken Brecker, who's the head of the foundation, pulled a library book off the shelf, and he took a deep whiff of it. Wow. And How interesting. <laughs> I thought, oh, well, I guess I'm new to L.A. Maybe that's the way people do it here. Yeah. What do I know? They snort, they snort books. books. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Actually, that's a nice thought. Yeah. And he said, uh, you can still smell the smoke in some of them. Uh. And I said, oh, did they used to allow smoking in the library? Of <laughs> course. And he looked at me like I was crazy. Of course. He said, No, the fire. And I said, What fire? And he said, The big fire, the fire in 86 that shut the library down for seven years. And my jaw just dropped. And I said, What? Tell me about this. And how did I never hear about it? Because The more I learned and the more I learned the scope of the fire, the more amazed I was. That was one of those stories that was kind of hiding in plain sight. So my interest in writing about libraries then had this hook because besides just being a chance to write about my – feelings about libraries, it was a chance to write about this event that was fascinating. I mean, both the investigation into it, the reason that I didn't know about it, the library's recovery from it, and all of the emotions around it, which were really powerful, because obviously people in L.A. knew about this, and for seven years— that library was closed. The main library was in, the head of the, the library 86. at that
2: time. Still, are, is still around.
3: He just passed away. We spent many, many, many hours on the phone. Tell me he, about him. He's uh, he was an amazing character. What's his, his, his name? name? Was Wyman Jones, uh-huh. and he's a v- irascible, um, arrogant, fascinating, multi-talented guy who was. An amateur magician, very talented magician, (laughs) and jazz pianist, who's also this head of libraries. He had come from running the libraries in Fort Worth, Texas, and was the head of the library system in L.A. for 20 years. Very opinionated. He actually believed that Central Library should be torn down and that the land should be sold and there should be a new library built somewhere else. But he conceded the point when public opinion rose up to preserve the building.
2: So why if back then when the fire happened and it was closed for seven years and that area isn't favored, so to speak, why did they bother resurrecting the library?
3: Well, there were a lot of people who made the argument that there was no need for a central downtown library and that the city could function very well just having branch libraries. And those people who
2: wanted to resurrect it, how did they win the day?
3: I can't say that people had the... Ability to see 20 years into the future and realize downtown would be renovated um, the way it's been because Mm -hmm. I was downtown in that period of time here as a visitor and no one lived down here. It was desolate at night. So the idea that the library would be a, a centerpiece in a revitalized downtown sounded ridiculous. But these people really had the hope that downtown would turn into a thriving part of the city. But there were also people saying the building is too small. We should tear it down, sell the land. We'll get all sorts of money for the land and we'll build another central library. In Somewhere <laughs> else. Yeah. And that, there was a very strong um, kind of movement supporting that. Now, looking back, I would say we're really lucky that that didn't happen. Is
2: there a hero of the uh, preservation cause? Absolutely.
3: There There was a woman named Margaret Bach and another architect named Barton Phelps. A number of architects got together and said, we have to preserve the library. And that actually was the first organized group doing any kind of historical preservation in LA. So we have them to thank. That uh, that grew into being the LA Conservancy, which has preserved all these Lautner houses, all these Schindler houses. That wouldn't have happened if, if the library hadn't been threatened.
2: Now, describe the devastation of losing that volume of these things, if, to them, precious volumes of beautiful books. Who did you talk to about that?
3: I spent time with a lot of the librarians who, many of whom are now retired, who were here at the time. The librarians were devastated. I mean, they had spent their entire professional lives developing the collections in their departments. Also, and I, I found this really touching. They were absolutely frantic over the prospect of their patrons not having the library to come to. And the city of L.A. hired a psychologist to work with the librarians because a lot of them really were suffering kind of PTSD. I mean, they had seen their life's work go up in smoke. They
2: care. They care about books in a way that probably you do on par because this is your stock and trade, but uh, similar, I guess, to art, where there's an inventory of material that exists purely for a humanistic reason. People who work there are horrifically underpaid. I was guided recently by a New York Times writer uh, to uh, the plight of libraries in Iowa. and we were uh, My wife and I have a charitable foundation, my family, and we, we were pointed toward this group of people. And there's three libraries she'd been in touch with who are struggling. Two I spoke to, I said to one of them, I said, what do you need? I didn't want to assume anything. I said, what do you need and, and, and how much money? She said, the, the budget for the library is $5,000. What? I said, I said, wait a second. I said, you mean like a day or a week? Or a... And she said, no, no. She said, everybody's volunteers and part-time people and no one's getting wow. paid. And she goes, books are given to us. She said, books we don't need. She said, what I need in this library is food. I need money for food because the kids are coming here and asking for food and they want to eat. They're coming from poor homes. Yeah. And I thought the average person just can't appreciate how much they must have suffered.
3: Yeah. A number of librarians' um, marriages fell apart in the wake of this. They were really depressed.
2: And out of a job, many yeah. of
3: them. And felt useless, felt – they didn't know what to do with themselves. One woman librarian told me she didn't get her period for for four months after the fire. She was under so much stress and she was so dismayed. I I think it's very difficult. It, I think it would be the, the only analog I can think of is if your house burned down. Mm-hmm.
2: When Dick Cavett's house, one of the Seven Sisters houses in Montauk, the Stanford White houses on the bluff there in Montauk, The house burned down. Ooh. A good deal of what was his on the personal level was destroyed in the fire. The house was ruined. And for that reason, I keep nothing of any value like that in my Long Island home. It's in storage in the city because I'm terrified of a fire. It's
3: terrifying. And interestingly, the insurance coverage that a library has covers the building and not the contents. So the insurance did not cover the cost of the lost books. It was like $22 million worth of books. The money had to be raised. It was raised by tiny donations from school kids, big donations from the Getty Foundation, from some of the studios, uh, George Lucas, Sidney Sheldon. Um, There was a real rallying in the city. And I suspect it was a lot of people who had never really before given the library much thought.
2: Well, of course, all books now in the world we live in exist digitally. Everything is on a file somewhere and backed up, and there's there's no fear that that's going to be erased forever. This fire, because it was so epic, did it launch some kind of program where people could preserve these books better and— in case this happens and these fabled collections aren't lost?
3: It's interesting because um, the fire occurred right at the moment when technology was first entering library management. The L.A. Library at that point switched to an electronic catalog right. because even losing the card catalog was Devastating. Problematic. <laughs> yeah. I mean they had to recatalog. Who knew what we had? Two million books. They they didn't even know. And that was actually uh, one of those odd pieces of timing that electronic cataloging was just becoming widely available. So L.A. had to recatalog all of its books anyway. It was purchasing – all of these new books to replace the ones that were lost. But the books themselves, all new books, a digital copy exists. Right. But of old books, they Google has a huge project where they are digitally scanning – Old books. That don't
2: exist on a file. That book is it. Yeah. And, and they're, they're going to make a file.
3: I mean, for an individual library to do that, it's probably right. Only Google can do that. But Google can do <laughs> Thank it. Thank you, Google. Yeah. And <laughs> so we are putting more safeguards in place so that if you had a devastating fire and you lost these rare— There's a backup. In many cases now, I think there is a backup. On the other hand— The L.A. Public Library has uh, the largest or one of the very largest collections of maps and atlases of any library in the country. They have over 200,000. I
2: read that. It
3: would take a very long time and a lot of money for them to digitize all of them. That's the goal because that would be fantastic to have all those maps, a digital copy of all of them. But it's, it's an enormous amount of work for a library to do.
2: For me, what I find interesting
3: uh,
2: with a book like this, you don't make it into a detective story. You don't build this book in that way. This book is a lot of history. How does the book begin to emerge? And how do you piece together? I guess what I'm asking is, how does Susan Orlean write a book? (laughs) What do you do?
3: (laughs) I'm still trying to answer that question, actually, for myself. But what I do, I have a My approach is to throw my net as wide as possible in the beginning, to have no preconceived idea of what the book is about. Show me everything. Just I want to learn everything. The way I look at it is in the beginning, I'm a student. I'm, I'm doing a graduate course in the library, library history, the history of this particular incident with the fire. The people who work there, the people who work there now, what the day to day life is of a library. And in the course of it, you know, and the history of arson and the history of burning books uh, in the course of world events, which sadly has been a a theme since uh, the beginning of time. As I'm doing all of this and gathering so much material, themes begin emerging to me. And what this was about was storytelling. We are creatures who tell stories. We preserve stories. And we make stories up about ourselves. We treasure them. And I feel like this was about the story of the library and the library is the repository of stories. The people who became very interesting to me in the book – like Harry Peake, the person who was uh, accused of starting the fire, of Charles Lummis, one of the really fascinating characters who ran the library. These were people who who made up stories about themselves, who created stories around who they were in the world, even more than the average person. So as that theme began to emerge helped me organize this material and begin pruning away at what was important for me to know but wasn't important to put in the book. I chose to start the book with Harry Peake because I think people are more interested in people than they are in places or events, that a book that invites you in through a character is often one that you're willing to keep reading. And he As a person who was a um, compulsive storyteller, otherwise known as a liar, he symbolized so much of what the book was. He's a a kind of classic creature of L.A., a wannabe actor, a dreamer, a drifter. How old at the time of the event? He was in his 20s, and he also kind of intersected with L.A. history in a very interesting way, Um, and I won't... Necessarily tell you the denouement of his story, so that will leave a little bit of mystery. But even the way he left this earth was very much a part of what was going on historically in Los Angeles. Yeah. But my challenge is I like writing about things I don't know anything about. So I begin as a student and then I become a teacher and I try to turn to readers and say, let me teach you about this amazing thing I learned about. And like a teacher, I have to figure out how can I tell you this story in the most compelling way that keeps you engaged. And I don't have to include every single thing that I learn because there's just too much, but instead create a narrative that will bring you into the story. And you can follow the, the journey of learning about why this topic interested me.
2: Susan Orlean. New Yorker writer and the author of The Library Book, about the 1986 L.A. Library fire. If you're as fascinated as I am by all things New Yorker, you should listen to my interview with the intrepid Tina Brown. Coming from Vanity Fair, she was greeted with skepticism when she took over the New Yorker in 1992.
3: It was much more um, open warfare against me at The New Yorker at the beginning, you know, because we had this huge kind of uh, pushback from the old guard expecting that this was going to be me putting Demi Moore in, in, in the magazine. I mean, for instance, the cartoonist, uh, Bob Mankoff, he thought that I was going to uh, cancel all the cartoons and just put pictures in.
2: Hear the full interview with Tina Brown in our archive at org.
4: Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
2: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Now, more of my conversation with New Yorker writer Susan Orlean. In February 1987, Ten months after the worst library fire in American history, the LAPD arrested a man named Harry Peake.
3: He confessed to starting the fire, and then he recanted. He confessed multiple times, actually, and recanted multiple times with different alibis each time.
2: Is it assumed that that was coached
3: by an attorney? Did a lawyer coach him? He didn't even have a lawyer for the first time. Several times that he confessed and recanted. This was he confessed to friends and friends turned him in, um, as one's friends do. There was a reward. (laughs) He had confessed multiple times to friends. He confessed to the police in a casual interview where they were simply saying – What were you doing that day? Where were you? What happened? And these are days
2: prior. No video cameras that are getting people going in and out.
3: There were simply security keeping people from coming in too early. There was no. There is no record. Take
2: your feet off the table. Exactly, and And don't eat
3: potato chips on the rare books. (laughs) Yeah, and be quiet. And even today, libraries are open to anybody. Anyone can come in. That is both their greatest strength and sometimes their greatest challenge. I
2: I did this movie with Emilio Estevez. He did this movie, The Public. And it's about uh, a a guy who's on the staff of the Cincinnati Public Library who joins a protest by homeless people uh, who are denizens of the library and a bane to the Board of the library. Mm-hmm. They stage a demonstration and they seal off a section of the library and take over and have a protest, have a demonstration. And uh, the movie just screened at uh, the Toronto Film Festival did quite well. Very oh, good, great! Good response. Yeah, we all went up there. Michael uh, Michael K. Williams and uh, um, oh, god, I uh, love Taylor him. Schilling and all these wonderful actors who were wow. in the film. And um, and Emilio plays the lead role. And the support he's gotten from the library community. It's really, really wonderful.
3: They are a warm, friendly, welcoming place full of interesting stuff, costing nothing. And there aren't that many places in our world that exist like that. So there was no record of... Harry Peake coming into the library as there was no record of anybody coming into the library. And and
2: in regards to him confessing and recanting, did he uh, indicate any motive? Why did he do it? Once he confessed to it, the next question is why.
3: He never said why. He never articulated that. The library opens for employees earlier than it does to the public. So a door is open. A security guard sits there to make sure you have an employee badge to get in. On that morning— A young man started walking in. The security guard stopped him and said, the library is not open. And the young man apparently was annoyed by being stopped and left. The city's final explanation for why they believed Harry Peake did it, on top of the fact that he had confessed, was that he was angry that the guard had turned him away. Well, I,
2: I want to get into the Apple store early, too. But did right. anybody venture what was wrong with him? Did they get into his mental health?
3: And That's part of what the mystery is, because usually people who are pyromaniacs generally display that behavior fairly early in life. It's very rare for someone in their twenties who has no history mm-hmm. ever and has never been to torch it, the it,
2: L.A. Central Library. Did uh, uh, did experts determine how the fire was set?
3: It's a big question. Uh, arson is the one of the most difficult crimes to analyze and, and recreate, investigate. Yeah and in fact it's the least successfully prosecuted felony for that very reason usually the means of starting a fire get destroyed in the fire and believe it or not libraries until the late 80s did not have sprinkler systems librarians which were I find, which I find all horrified yeah it's pretty shocking <laughs> the library they didn't have sprinkler systems because the worry was water is as damaging or yeah, they more off, damaging, if they went off
2: accidentally, someone set them right. off, right?
3: Someone lights a match, to, you know, and and sneaking a, a
2: cigarette back in the seventies, and then boom,
3: you've got your sprinkler yeah. systems going off, and your books are going to be ruined. So, the American Library Association, until the late eighties, advised against sprinkler systems, and this was before they had systems that use gas and smoke uh, detectors. Yeah, I mean, this was not uh, basically. Fire prevention at that time was a, a sprinkler a that would get triggered and send and douse water. all the
2: product. Yeah. In
3: fact, a great number of the books that were ruined in the fire were ruined by water right. that right. firefighters were like, using. Like Always in Fires. Yeah. yeah. In fires.
2: Now, you grew up in Cleveland. Yes. And what did your dad do?
3: He was a real estate developer. And um, your mom? Mostly a mom and part-time worked in a bank.
2: When you were growing up in that household, what were books in your childhood and what was your relationship to literature? Everybody was a big
3: reader. They were. My parents were great library goers and they grew up in the Depression. I think they felt, as many people who grew up in the Depression felt, if you could borrow something, why would you buy it? They were not big on buying books. It it was to them a luxury that – Was didn't make sense. You could borrow a book. So we would go to the library all the time. I grew up going at least once a week, if not twice a week, taking books out. I didn't start buying books till I was in college. And I think I was buying textbooks and suddenly became obsessed with owning books. My parents, to the day they died, they had the money to buy books. They lived through the depression and and they had were very comfortable and could have afforded any books they wanted they it was something that was embedded in them, that you borrowed books from mm-hmm. the library and mm-hmm. you didn't buy them. So in we my, didn't have a lot of books in my house. Even when I go to Barnes & Noble, I love it.
2: And I just sit there, I get the same feeling. I'm in, I'm in a room full of books. doesn't oh, matter whose name is on the, the, the door. Yeah. By Lincoln Center, the one by 66th and Which Broadway, they closed. Now. And when yeah. it closed, I was, that was my Barnes & Noble. I was devastated. Yeah. Not even the big one on, um, uh, on 80- 80th, 80th on and, Broadway. and Broadway. That was yeah, The old Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, I didn't, I didn't, uh, uh, I didn't go to that one. I didn't like that as much as that one uh, by Lincoln Center. I loved that bookstore. I'm going to close. That was so sad.
3: Oh, it's, it's a heartbreak.
2: Now, I want to ask you, because we are going to run out of time. Um, how does writing congeal in your life? Like, when do you decide that's what you're going to do with your life? I mean, it's a big commitment.
3: I started writing when I learned to read. And I never thought I would be anything other than a writer. I wrote little books for my family when I was really young. I'm not trying to say I was a prodigy. I just... Writing always seemed to me to be the filter through which experience made sense to me. Communicating, telling stories seemed like a natural transaction between me and the world. Just It was just what I wanted to do. When I was... Probably in college, I realized what I really wanted to do was tell true stories. I didn't want to write fiction. I wanted to learn about the world and particularly learn about things that they hadn't noticed or hadn't thought about before. And trying to figure out how you do that for a living was, of course, a bit of a challenge. But when I discovered The New Yorker, I thought, aha, I get it now. This is where you write those kinds of stories, where you examine life and, and tell their stories. So it was my dream to work there. And I'm lucky enough to – and I've never done any – I waitressed. But other than that, I've never done any other jobs.
2: You think that Orchid Thief was your most cinematic book?
3: Well, the funny thing is I think none of them are and yet... So, so
2: what's so what surprised you about that? I mean, they made this into a very famous movie. Did that surprise you when they Completely came and said we want to make a movie? Completely
3: surprised me. In fact, when it was optioned and it was optioned immediately before I had even finished the book, I thought, I have no idea what these people think they're doing. It's a very um, discursive, uh, sort of reflective, internal book. I cannot imagine how you're going to make a movie out of this. But... That's not my problem. That's your problem. And I remember saying to a friend, they're going to have to make the crime be a murder or something more dramatic than just stealing orchids. It's just impossible. And there's going to have to be some sex in it somehow. (laughs) (laughs) And lo and behold, there you go. I, I mean, when I got the script for adaptation, I read it and thought, you people are crazy. I don't know what you're doing, but at least I'm right. You did have to put in a murder and a car crash. I've had this funny relationship with Hollywood that I write things that I want to write, and I they are not conventional in any way in terms of Hollywood's sense of a story, and yet— They come knocking. They come knocking, and I'm delighted. And you
2: don't want to write screenplays?
3: Well, I've never— particularly been interested in it but we are adapting this book for television and I thought you know what I'm going to I'm going to give it a shot I think it would be fun to try a different kind of writing. That's cool. Um but there's so many things I want to write about out in the world that um I've never said I want to be the one to adapt my work. I've I've always found it mostly people Option my work, and I think, I have no idea what you are going to do with this. (laughs) So just call me when it's done, and I'll come to the premiere. I'm very happy. Give me a few days' notice so I can get my dress to the dry That's how I feel about
2: movies I'm in. (laughs) (laughs) Really? I don't want to see the movie. They'll say, oh, you want to see a cut of the movie? I'm like, No. no. I'll come to the premiere.
3: I suppose now that I live in L.A., my interest in working on the adaptation of this book is more than it was when I lived in New York. Because I'm going to work on it with a friend who's a wonderful writer. It's director. more conducive
2: to be out here, maybe.
3: Yeah. Um, but what do, you, what do you
2: think living in LA is going to do to your writing?
3: Boy, I wonder about it. Except, um, you know, there are the stories that I'm interested in writing. I think are the same that they've always been, and I don't see a big change in that regard. Okay. I've lived in a lot of different places since I began writing. I lived in. Boston, in New York, in upstate New York, um, in Boston again, now in LA. And I my writing has remained really consistent. I think there are stories that I'll find out about because I live here that I might not have seen otherwise. But in the heart of the writing, I feel that that's such an internal thing that where you're living doesn't affect it as much.
2: You're married to John Gillespie.
3: Last time I checked, I worked
2: at the Lampoon.
3: He did, and is, is a very. Does he funny crack you guy. up all the time? Is he funny? He's very funny. <laughs> He's very funny, but he also says to me that the classic Lampoon response to someone else making a joke is to simply, with a very straight face, say, "Uh huh." Yeah, that's that's funny. Yeah,
2: I, I, I co-wrote a book with Kurt Anderson.
3: Oh, so you know? And Kurt
2: did you know ninety-five percent of the writing, and, and Kurt and I did the Trump parody book. Kurt wrote a book called uh, "You Can't Spell America Without Me." It's a parody, and what and was so riveting? It was truly just overwhelming to me, and just. Mesmerizing was how fast the book came out of it. He wrote it in just like like weeks. It just came. He'd send me you know uh, uh, chapters, and I was overwhelmed by how. I give him
3: notes. He's so productive, yeah. And he's he's,
2: he's so funny.
3: So he and my husband were together, and there were a lot of people who emerged from that couple of years. Um, Well, the lampoon has always churned out amazingly clever, smart people. But that particular year, there were a lot of people who've gone on to have quite illustrious careers. Is he still writing now? My husband? Uh, He wrote a book about corporate boards and how bad they are. Um, But mostly he's been in the financial world,
2: which is funny in its own way. (laughs) He finds the funny in
3: Exactly.
2: Well, I want to say, uh, because we're pretty much out of time but I just want to say in my town Massapequa, Long Island the Massapequa Public Library a very nice library and it was centrally located it wasn't like on some outpost where they had, could get cheap land you know what I mean they just, it was right in the heart of town you just got that special feeling of going to the library you went to the library and you were groomed almost because my father was a teacher I guess so this was a part of it oh there's an opportunity for me here something's going to happen here this is a sacred a place of real deliberation we're going to sit we're going to learn about the research for school obviously and looking up you know about Arvar, Nunez Cabetha de Vaca and the explorers we would study when we were in the 6th grade and they had two of the old style bookmobiles oh, they would be taken on the trailer day. hitch and it was it was parked in the parking lot of a nine hole public golf course that existed in my neighborhood and the and the parking lot of the golf course was across the street from my house
3: oh God. And we would
2: walk across the street and go into this funky, weird
3: bubble. Like a trailer? Bubble.
2: It was like a little trailer. And the woman was sitting at the desk. It was almost like it was like doll furniture. It was like a little, <laughs> little desk she was at. And the books had all the little uh, wooden slats to keep them from flying off the shelf. Uh, they had like these little guardrails. They snapped on them when they traveled so they wouldn't come flying when the That's thing was great. driving. And I get a phone call from the Massapeco Public Library and they say, you know, this is over. You know, we're, we're, we're going to take these things we're going to junk them. Would you like to buy one? I bought
3: it. Oh, you're kidding. And I, and oh I my God, i stuck it. I'm and I jealous. stuck it
2: in a little corner of my property on Long Island and I put trees around it because my neighbors complained. My neighbors said to me, why do you have these decrepit structures? They said, what, what is this? These are real Hamptonites, shall we say. Uh, one woman said to me, she goes, I didn't realize we were living in Appalachia.
3: Oh, God. She said That's to me. horrible.
2: But I remember that feeling, you know, of, of going to that and, and getting those books. And you knew the value, the plastic coating on them to protect yeah. the covers and everything. And I remember the uh, the sacred experience and, of handling that material.
3: And I think that – you know, I love bookstores too and I love owning yeah. books. But libraries, there is something special and, and sacred about the idea of it being a shared space with shared things that we – as a society, have created this entity, and we all share in it together, and it works almost all the time. You take a book home, you read it, you bring it back, someone else takes it. I mean, it. It is democratic, small d experience in the most really beautiful way, and going into a library and seeing a scholar and a teenager and a homeless person and a wealthy person and everyone has the same right to take the books. It feels great. It's
2: like how I assume some people feel when they go to church. It feels yeah. right. Yeah. It feels good.
3: It, it makes me feel... I get very emotional about it. I mean, mm-hmm. and I'm going into a bookstore I love and it feels amazing and I, I want everything and I love walking around. That element of thinking, wow, we can really do things together as a society and have it work is... Particular to a library, and it feels so gratifying. Well,
2: I, I'm really looking forward to seeing the, a movie of this because something tells me, like Orchid Thief, it's an unlikely subject into something that could become a very, very engaging film.
3: Thank you. I
2: hope it. I hope. I hope it makes it to the screen in some fashion.
3: Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm. I'm excited about it, and I think um, it will be a pleasure to highlight. This world of libraries in some way, um because they really, especially this moment in time, when so much else feels so dark and troubled at risk, they are real beacons yeah. in the world at the moment. And, there's something about being in a room full of books. There's nothing else like it. You want to snort with, them? Right, I, I, I do. <laughs> now I know it's completely acceptable in L.A. to snort a book. I'm gonna.
2: Susan Orlean's latest, *The Library Book*, about the devastation of the L.A. Central Library in 1986, is in stores now from Simon and Schuster. This is Alec Baldwin. And you're listening to Here's the Thing.
0: Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country,
4: huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes!
0: Wait! Did we just invent
4: California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
1: We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope.